0: Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. My name is James. And I'm CJ, and this is the only
1: podcast where, my dear doctor, the path has never seemed more slow, and yet I fear I am nearing its end. Reason tells me that you and I are unlikely to meet ne- Every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival. And this week, we're looking at Stephen Moffat's sophomore effort, Girl in the Fireplace. But first, James, how
0: are you? I'm doing pretty well. Um, it's been a totally fine, normal week with very little to report. Um, I got review code for a very exciting game yesterday that I can't talk about yet because I'm under embargo. But um, look out for that in a couple of weeks time on Power Up. I'm, I'm very keen to... Um, to talk about that with all of you lovely people. How about you? Yeah,
1: Um. well, just the normal anxieties bubbling away in my head. <laughs> Nothing too severe. Uh, it's been... Okay, so here's a little bit about me. Um, I'm a huge temperature freak, uh, and I really need cool temperatures all the time. And It's been really hot here in Sydney lately, or hot by my standards. So my big accomplishment this week was I bought an air conditioner, and I feel really happy
0: about that. It's all happening, people. Like, it is all coming up two hearts um before we dive into the girl in the fireplace uh we actually have some doctor who news to talk about this week uh obviously we are going to be by the time that you listen to this you know this won't be necessarily quote-unquote the newest news um but it does worth uh, it is worth having having a chat about because uh once again it seems like the time war has been erased well, at this point it's like whatever you want
1: mate i don't i don't give a shit um <laughs> <laughs> um no yes uh so i think that time law victorious the big multi-platform project that everyone's been teasing for months and months and months has kicked off this week with um the comic defender of the daleks um and yeah it appears that the time law has been a, the time law has been time war my apologies has been erased and this is going to be the big central mystery at the heart of the paradox of time law victorious um here are two questions where's doctor 13 jodie whittaker and why is there no women in this project
0: um yeah those are both very valid questions i I think that with 13 um i'm like we had this chat but i'm pretty sure it has something to do with like licensing and the current doctor can't be featured in sort of like extended material i'm pretty sure there's some sort of like weird bbc legal sort of red tape that ties that one up but uh yeah it doesn't excuse the fact that um, when you go to, there's, there's, a link, we'll drop it into the show notes. It gives you a little like map of the Time Lord Victorious content, but, and because it is so extensive, they've wanted to make sure that, you know, if you just want to focus on the journey of, uh, the ninth doctor, click on the ninth doctor and it tells you exactly which stories you need to, to buy, to understand what's been happening here. And uh, there are no women in, in the character lineup for characters that you can follow through this we talked about this when Tumblr Victorious was first announced, but like Rose is still on that poster in that like, kind of like goddess, like white dress looking like the fucking Virgin Mary. And it's like, what, what is this kind of like weird faux edgy branding that they've created here? Where are the women? Why is any of this happening?
1: (laughs) Why is any of this happening? It's a valid question. And one that I don't have any answers for Billy Piper does, of course, appear on this uh, post to so your right as a Virginia's sacrifice, basically. But honestly, like, who even cares about that? Because Billy Piper actually appears in something much, much, much better. Uh, a performance, literally, of uh, of her career. Um, I Hate Susie, which premiered in Australia on Stan. And I've got to tell you, it's literally... I Hate Susie is maybe the best thing that I've seen in years.
0: It's definitely up there. It is, um, yeah. So, like, obviously we've been watching, you know, Billy Piper's early work in Doctor Who, uh, and we're a fan of her performance, even if we have trouble with the characterization. And so to see her now in her 30s uh, as the leading role in a, in a television show, she's teamed up once again with Lucy Preble, who um, was the creative mind behind Diary of a Call Girl, which was one of her first, like, big sort of like projects outside of Doctor Who where she kind of shook off the, the child-friendly persona and took on a very sort of like adult, mature, sex-positive role. So now I Hate Susie has come along and is essentially providing like another like sex-positive, uh, very nuanced, mature look at uh, gender politics and and the role of fame in things and, and consent. And it's a stunning showcase for Billy Piper who has always been really talented, but like p- specifically in this, is one of the best performances I've ever seen. It's, it's really incredible stuff. And it did make me kind of wish that, you know, if, if we're going to be drawing on old actors from the past in Doctor Who to cast new doctors like they did with Capaldi, um, I think it's high time we give Billy Piper the mantle of the Doctor. Billy Piper is, like, a standout performer and
1: actor, and... Um, She's proved this is the second time as like the the lead character in a show and she proves time and time again that she has like so like buckets of charisma and commanding uh screen presence. She could fucking run rings around the character of the doctor. She would be amazing and I for one am um, front and center to see that performance.
0: And like, I mean, like, obviously, don't, don't get us wrong. Like, um, what Joe Martin is doing with the role is obviously, I think, where we should probably be heading next with the character of the Doctor, because, like, you know, again, like, another blonde white woman is kind of like, eh, you know, we, we probably didn't need to do that. But, uh, in in a vacuum, in a perfect little world, um, I I think we both agree that, like, watch, I hate Susie, listeners, and then watch her cycle through that entire range of emotions that does include, like, you know, anger and and sadness and joy. And she does everything with so much charisma and so effortlessly that if you transplanted that into the character of the Doctor, I think you'd have something that, um, for the fans at least, would rival, like, David Tennant's kind of iconic uh, mannerisms and whatnot. Um, Yeah, it's just... Uh, it's it's kind of a shame that we have to go back to talking about Billy Piper as Rose <laughs> for this episode, uh, because I, d- I do think that Billy Piper is is a, a genuinely stunning performer and probably, in retrospect, really does deserve a lot better than what the show gave her at the time. Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit there, so I think without further ado, we are probably going to dive right into the girl in the fireplace. <laughs> We can't stop them. I need to find out what they're looking for. There's only one way I can do that. You are inside my mind. A spaceship from the 51st century stalking a woman from the 18 One of them must have found the right time window. Now it's time to send in the troops. Be- Go in the Fireplace is the fifth or fourth episode, we're not entirely sure, of season two. Uh, It is directed by Eros Lin and written by my boy Stephen Moffat. Now IMDb this week is getting just progressively more and more colourful, so let's get that one out of the way (laughs) real quick. The Doctor, Mickey and Rose land on a spaceship in the 51st century, only to find 18th century Versailles on board. The time of Madame de Pompadour. To find out what's going on, the doctor must enter Versailles and save Madame de Pompadour, but it turns into an emotional roller coaster for the doctor. Who is writing these synopses? If you're out there, if you're listening to us, please reach out. We would love to have you as a guest. We, we want to we understand your process. Alright, now, uh, Go on the Fireplace is a pretty plotty episode, so um, I've obviously done our little write-up for this week. We're just going to try and smash this out, and then we'll move on to our little discussion. So, the Doctor, Rose, and Mickey land on a spaceship in the 51st century and discover an ornate fireplace that links the ship to the 18th century through a time vortex. The ship is littered with these windows to the past, all of which lead to France and various intervals of Renette Poisson's life, ranging from childhood to her late 30s. The Doctor travels to and fro, befriending Renette through various times in her life and eventually forming a pseudo-romantic bond with her after the two are linked by the Time Lord telepathy. In the meantime, Rose and Mickey explore the ship and discover that it is being repaired using human body parts by clockwork androids who ultimately are aiming to harvest Renette's brain when she is of age. The Doctor saves Renette from the invading androids but in doing so smashes the time portal window and apparently severs the ship's connection to the past. Fortunately, the ornate fireplace still works and the Doctor returns to the ship, offering Renette a place in the TARDIS when he returns for her in just a few minutes. But time is so heavily disordered between the two points of the window that when he returns, she is aged another 10 years and has died from a unknown illness. The gang leaves the ship, never fully understanding why the androids need Renette in particular, but the audience is shown that the name of the ship is the SS Madame de Pompadour as it drifts, dying into space.
1: It's such a lovely... It's such a lovely ending. Not lovely in the sense that, like, oh, it's happy. Like, just... There's a feeling, there's an emotion there to that... To that last shot of the ship turning and you see the sign, SS Madame de Pompadour, that makes my heart sing.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's, like, a... Um, <clears throat> uh, it's it's weird to say that, like, like, a warm melancholy you know um, because like it is an inherently quite a tragic ending because of um, the fact that you know Rinne never gets to travel with the doctor and uh, the nature of the androids of the ship sort of um, working and and doing what they're doing without really knowing why until they eventually also end up just stopping and then the ship stops and like everything sort of dies at the end of The Girl in the Fireplace and yet it's done so in such a kind of like romanticized fairy tale way that Mm. it feels it just feels like closing the book as opposed to like a real horrible kind of like slamming of it shut I guess um but before we get into details uh, I guess just in in general how did you feel about the girl in the fireplace
1: um loved it what more do I have to say I mean it's a classic it's a bonafide classic we we know this and I I when I rewatched it I did have it's such a, a odd experience because like I had such high expectations and it reached them and sought above them expertly that I like I, I, in trying to write notes and trying to think about how to talk about this episode, I really have been struggling because it, I, I don't want this to just feel like it was a really good, like kind of review. Like I do want to like get into some meat, um, but it was just really good. So I don't know what to say. What did you think?
0: <laughs> um <laughs> yeah like i i'm i'm in much the same boat um when we've, we've said this before and we will absolutely say it again but when moffat hits uh when he really connects with what he's trying to do um it is like nothing else in the show um he just has a particularly perfect grasp on um like the inherent magic of, of what doctor who can offer as a storytelling medium um i think he writes the characters as not necessarily true to life as Russell T does. Um and we've noted on this before, but like he writes in a very big dramatic swings. Um and because of that everything fits within the logic of a Moffat episode in a Moffat universe. And that does make this episode slightly disjointed um with its place in the season and, and we'll get to that and then why that's the case. But look in, in a vacuum, I, I think it's like just a, a you know, it's a stunning episode of Doctor Who. Um, it, it does so much right. Uh, there's only like one or two things really that I'm a bit like, meh, on. But there's nothing that I outright dislike, which is, mm. uh, I don't know, given the run that we're having with season two, pretty good at this point, I'd say.
1: Did you want to touch on those things that, that got you down about this episode? Because I have a couple of notes that I also found, um, elements of this of the episode that I found just a bit blah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Let's get those out of the way. Um, so the the core concept of having um, a uh, th- this window between the spaceship and um, Renette's life, and the concept being that you know these windows emerge at different points in her life, and when the Doctor and Co are on the spaceship, um, it, you know it might be two minutes for them. But for Renette, it's, you know, months or, or weeks or, or something like that. And so because of that, you have this, like, very rapid ageing of Renette up from when she's a child to when she's uh, an, an adult woman. Um, which is a, a good way to sort of, like, get rid of the, the child actor part where you, you know... Like, uh, the, the girl that plays, like, child Renette is, is fantastic and everything. But, like, you, we know what we're here for, you know? Like, you need... You need the doctor to play off of an adult and someone who can go toe to toe with him for this kind of story to work. And so rapidly aging Renette up to that point is good in, in a plot sense. Um, But you do run into the problem when you start giving them that, like, again, that pseudo romantic or explicitly romantic connection is that the, the, the idea of like a much older man. And obviously when we talk about the doctor, he's, you know, thousands of years old, but even still an adult male um, knowing a young girl from when she was a child and then when he sees her again as an adult, it's like, Oh, well, we're just going to start making out and be madly in love. Um, is, it's just a bit gross. It's just a bit like slimy. I I don't particularly like how that feels on the palate. Um, even if putting myself in that situation, if I had like a child, like an imaginary, what I thought was an imaginary childhood friend who was super hot and saved me every time. And then I found him as an adult and he hadn't aged a day. I'd probably want to fuck him. But that doesn't mean that it's a good enough uh, sort of justification or or logic behind this script that Moffat's done here, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think that Moffat's kind of... And this is me projecting into his mind. I obviously don't know him or um, don't know what he's thinking. Um, But I think that Moffat's, like, mindset, when it comes to Doctor Who, is, like, explicitly childlike. And so... I think that's why a lot of his scripts are sort of peppered with um, it, lo- sexual elements or very adult themes, but told through a childlike lens in such a way that like there's an innocence to them and there's a, 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 an innocence to them that means that like elements like what you're talking about um, do come across. I'm not explaining this very well. Basically it's through the eyes of a child So, and it was with a childlike kind of romantic innocence that, like, it's not an issue in this world that's created. Not to say it's not an issue in the world that we're literally living in, and I don't know how you marry those two things up.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. That that is kind of the rub of a lot of our criticisms of Doctor Who, and especially of this era as well, in that um, we're obviously bringing a a very uh, socially conscious... um, uh, full, like forward thinking. I, uh, yes, I don't know. Like, it's it's difficult to exactly define um, the kind of like, um, yeah, just that that socially conscious kind of lens that we that we bring to things. I don't want to like over like self aggrandize or whatever because uh, like we're still just like two dudes having a chat about Doctor Who, um, but we can't help but view these things through a very sort of you know current year lens. And so when you look at this kind of stuff, um, yeah, within the logic of the show, I, I think it's 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 neither here nor there like i don't think it's particularly offensive as part of the makeup of the story um it's just when you look at moffat as a writer and as much as i i obviously adore moffat i think he does some things incredibly well but there is another side to that coin which is Uh, And we've alluded to this, that there are some very problematic elements in the way that he writes his women, especially in his early seasons with Amy. And it's worth noting that, again, we've got an example here of a a young child who sees the doctor as a child who then goes on to uh, have a sort of sexualized fantasies and a romantic connection with him later in her life. and I think it's probably a little bit more refined with what they do with Amy because of inevitably like the uh, friendship that develops between the two of them as opposed to this kind of very obviously romantic thing. Um, but but still, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, like maybe this is just inherently a little bit creepy and it's one of those things that you maybe don't consider when you're just a straight dude writing a script, you know?
1: Well, yeah, <laughs> that's it, isn't it? Um, we do obviously have extremely different views I think not extremely different views but we are like different minds to Moffat and to writers on this show and so we are going to bring different elements to it I think if I was going to criticize this episode for anything it would be on the grounds of historical accuracy not even necessarily historical accuracy but just like ignoring elements of Renette the real Madame de Pompadour um to tell this story I was thinking about it because I wrote down in our notes that, you know, I feel like Renette is used as a prop that she's just there to be amazed with the doctor and to fall in love with him. Um, and even though there are like hints that she's like this worldly woman who's uh, independent and sexually liberated, um, there's no indication given about the real Madame de Pompadour other than that little fan wank that the doctor has when he realizes who she is um, about her like accomplishments, her interests in arts and politics and like, her progressiveness and for that time at least um this is all kind of brushed away and it's not really part of a characterization and then I was like well I wouldn't make that same criticism of um Queen Victoria another historical figure we've seen in this very season um and I was wondering if I the reason why I wasn't being as critical of that was because Queen Victoria isn't being used as a sex object um or in a gen, she isn't being seen as like a gendered character. She is, and I, and I, I wondered if that was the reason why I was critical of Madame de Pompadour, but not her or other, indeed, other characterizations of historical figures. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that makes absolute total sense. Um, the problem with. Because uh, here's the thing, like with Renette's characterization, I think that if she was just not, if she, if she wasn't Madame de Pompadour, if she was just a, a woman who existed in 18th century Versailles that the Doctor developed this connection with, um, I think her characterization would go down a lot smoother. Because, like, yes, there is. And again it's that moffat problem with some of his early writing there's an inherent objectification of the women in his stories um in the way that they relate re- relate in the way that they relate to the doctor um and so you do have an accomplished woman like Madame de Pompadour who kind of, like you said, does at times get reduced down to either a sex object or something that just exists to be in awe of the Doctor. I think that's a very valid criticism. I also think that her characterization and the way that she relates to the massive amounts of information that come from being involved in the doctor's world like the time travel or the robots or the the portals and all that sort of stuff the way that she handles herself there with so much competency and sort of acceptance of of these new surroundings and the playfulness that she brings to it um i think there's a lot of good characterization in there as well that probably does at least subtly reflect maybe the woman that she was in reality um and it's not as if, you know, New Who hasn't taken liberties with historical figures before and kind of painted over some parts to show you. Another part instead like you know uh in season three you've got Shakespeare being bisexual um in season one you had um you've had you've got Charles Dickens who's having this kind of like late in life existential crisis and it's all very like massive leaps of what you think the emotional logic of that historical figure would have been at the time um and those work for me in the same way that Madame de Pompadour works for me here uh but again I, I do I think the key difference is the one that you've highlighted is the sexualization element of it. Uh, Because when you have men writing these stories about these women who are quite lovelorn, it does tend to come off as quite, um, maybe slightly insensitive at at times, let's say.
1: Totally, totally. Um, But I do think it's worth us discussing um, potentially like the ooh, the gendered politics of uh, introducing a love story for the Doctor in this episode when there's already one ongoing with Ms Rose Tyler. Um, I I do have thoughts. I do have thoughts about this episode. But I, on watching, and my initial thought before I'd even watched the episode was like, it's odd that this episode doesn't include more of a protest or explicit exploration of the fact that Rose is literally watching the man that she loves fall in love with somebody else. But then on watching this episode, I was like, I honestly don't think I care about that or I'm happy to leave that aside for one week. What what, what do you think?
0: I had the same reaction. Um, there was uh, actually in my rough show notes, there was a very particular moment where... Um, I don't know the gang is separated for a period of time uh, because Mickey and Rose are off doing their own thing and the doctor's obviously doing his own thing and then at some point he comes back to see them uh, and her reaction to him coming back after being gone for you know 20 minutes or so whatever it is is like oh hey what have you been up to like it's so casual it's so friendly and it feels like it it kind of feels like a glimpse at the dynamic that the two of them could have had if season two wasn't so suffocating with the idea of them being googly eyed for each other the entire time. Uh, Because I think, and again, we've kind of touched on this, but like the concept of them being googly eyed, isn't the problem. It's that it's all consuming is where the problem comes from Um, because it consumes Rose's characterization. It consumes David Tennant's performance and and it consumes these little moments that you miss out on. Um, and yeah, to your point, I didn't miss it in this episode because it felt nice to just have them kind of react like people to each other as opposed to people who are being explicitly written to be like, oh, they're so in love. Don't you just love them together? And it's like, yeah, I love them together. But I also love that Mickey's here now. I love that Rose and Mickey are hanging out and being friendly to each other. There's just so many more avenues that we can explore when you drop the the like sort of jealous girlfriend routine for Rose. I know that there's a lot of critici- uh, criticism of this episode that she does fall into that characterization here. And I don't think she does at all. I think School Reunion is a much more offensive example of that than what's going on here. Oh, totally. A hundred percent agree. But I do, do think it's an odd...
1: There's a there's an odd shift from that episode to this one. And it a good key or a good indicator of like that um, disc- discordant style... Uh, is uh Mickey because obviously in the last episode we had Mickey join the tardis, and it was rose's reaction to that was not like pleased I think she like is like seriously passive aggressive against him, basically just aggressive towards him at the idea that he joined the tardis and then in this episode they're like the best of friends they're just like super super chummy, and I love that I really love that because like i'm I'm just so sick of rose's Antagonistic attitude towards anyone who dares to become between her and her doctor, but it is not; it doesn't follow on from where it's come from before, and so I do think that's an issue. Even if I'm like happy that that choice has been made, it's I'm very it's odd, odd, odd <laughs> kind of conflict I'm having here. Um, but it is; I still think it's very odd um, that there isn't. There's one scene in particular that I feel like would have been just like perfect if they've just like put in a scene. Of Rose, it's I, I'm not even I just think it, it if it more had been made of the doctor's choice to abandon Rose for Renette, um that would have made sense, but I'm also glad that that scene's not there, so I just, I just yeah I don't know what to say I don't know what to say um there's not a scene of her begging him to stay, there's no scene where he's like where he has any kind of conflict about that decision, he just jumps through the mirror. In the horse, and then in a later scene, is like, I guess I did do it without thinking, and I think there's a lot there, but I, ugh, it, me uh, the episode doesn't delve into that very deeply.
0: Yeah, um, and I think with that one, we're brushing up against the actual time mechanics of this episode, because, and again, speaking of common criticisms of this episode, what you're talking about, this whole concept of, you know, the doctor just abandons Rose and Mickey to die on a space station, I think is a like it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how time works in doctor who is is the vibe that i'm getting and this spirals into your point about you know he didn't have any consideration there was no dialogue between him and rose about the choice he was making and he goes through the window or the, through the mirror and he smashes it and seemingly severs the connection and you know, he says you know three thousand years of bad luck and i think the concept is that like he now has to live out 3,000 years until he can get back to that point in history and find Rose on that spaceship when he leaves that timeline. But to Rose and Mickey, I think he would just kind of like come back, <laughs> you know, he like, t- like, do you know what I mean? Like the, the past and, and the future and the whole mm. concept of like, you go back and you plant something in the past and it will inevitably catch up to that point in the future where it left.
1: Mm. Absolutely. But I think that's a very modern, from our perspective, perspective of how Doctor Who approaches time. And when this episode went out, that wasn't the case. That's a Moffat. That's a Moffat uh, choice that he makes when he becomes the showrunner.
0: And this is a Moffat
1: episode. No, but he's not the... <laughs> I know that, but he's not the showrunner at this point. It's, we're still in RTD's universe and RTD's laws of time where that isn't necessarily the case. So I, I, I see what you're saying. I also think that it wasn't... The audience wasn't expected to think that
0: way about time at that point yeah no nah, look that's that's entirely fair um it's yeah it, it's a strange one because like again i'm also glad that we didn't get the scene of her like pleading with him to stay um but it does feel strange that like i mean this is a very rose light episode you know she is definitely there and she has some really standout moments that i that i love um but when you know the, the main thrust of the plot is renette and the doctor which is understandable that the main characters here. Um, but yeah, it, I know it, it's, it's odd because it doesn't do what it needs to do to fit in with the general flow of the season in terms of where we're at with these two characters, but what it does is better. And so you're inclined to prefer this method, um, <laughs> even if it doesn't make a huge amount of sense with mm. what we've just seen before it. Mm.
1: Mm. And um, it, on that, it was very jarring at the very end of this episode too after the very slow, elegaic, I think that's the word, elegaic, um, ending to suddenly be like, bang, zeppelins. Oh, we're on uh, alternative earth. Oh, doctor, it's me dad. And just like, I was like, oh, doctor, who's back next week?
0: Oh, no. Um, <laughs> it, it is kind of like, and it's weird because like, we often like criticize Moffat for his, um, overextending and, and big kind of silly and ridiculous ideas but when at this point in his career when he's quite reserved and when he doesn't have complete control his episodes stand out for being markedly much more reserved as stories and so then when yeah when you see the trailer for next time and it's fucking cyberman and whatnot you're like oh damn it we have to go back to like quote-unquote doctor who <laughs> which isn't to say that uh i'm not very excited to look
1: at the Cyberman 2 part of next week because I do love that story but like it was just such a jarring experience seeing that trailer right after this episode um it almost I almost felt like it needed to come after the credits I just wanted to sit with that ending for a little bit longer mm. yeah that, that that's very very reasonable um there is one other aspect of that that very good ending where the plot comes together and the robots are left stranded on the other side of the mirror with nowhere getting back to the ship. Um, and the doctor's speech about like, you know, how many ticks have you got left and things are just slowly winding down and then they all turn off. I f- it's, it's such a choice ending <laughs> and I love it. Um, and I do the, there is like one aspect that I'm keen to just like rip into a little bit which is when the doctor says, you know, they've stopped, they have no purpose now. And you get that, you get these like dueling shots of Rose and the doctor, both stranded in their respective time zones, both looking up at the same uh, space. It's, it feels like the same space, even though I know it's not. I know that the ship isn't in, in, remotely near earth. Um, but you get that, they both, you get those shots of them both just like stopped in their adventures with no purpose anymore. And I wondered if that was like implying that they both have no purpose beyond each other or if they impel each other to keep going, which would be in keeping with the theme of this season so far. What do you
0: think? Yeah, it, it would be. And and Moffat does do that in the way that he writes his companion doctor relationships is that they are essential to each other. It's like, it's a complete two-way street and that they both give each other purpose. And so, yeah, I think having them both like have that, you know, staring at the same moon kind of like moment. Um, yeah, I, I, I would definitely believe that that's intentional. I mean, like this episode is like shockingly well-constructed and emotionally poignant. So I don't, really believe that there are any just like mistaken happy accidents here do you know what i mean like i I do believe that this was a meticulously plotted and written out story that genuinely put thought into all of the imagery that it used um so yeah i i really i really vibe with that interpretation of the ending
1: um and definitely in terms of like everything is deliberate like there is so much deliberateness to this episode that makes it such an enjoyable experience like the turning ship that's like meant to like replicate the clockwork like notions of the the robots um i really like and i don't know <laughs> i don't know what it means like quote unquote means necessarily but i really like the the shot of rose and mickey looking down that little tiny metal corridor at the heart in the center of the ship like pumping and like because it's such a romantic episode and hearts and romance go together naturally two hearts even um, it, it feels like such an appropriate image for this episode, but I'm not sure if it's anything, has any deeper significance beyond that. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, f- <laughs> I think my thoughts on this episode are like, yeah, sure. Fuck it. Why not? Like if something works to sort of further bolster this episode, I am, I am all for it. Uh, and yeah, the whole concept of like using human body parts to repair the ship, um, it's, it's weirdly like it's a grotesque concept and and it is quite a um sort of hr geiger almost like very like meeting of like metal and flesh and weirdly enough before a cyberman story we we have something like this happen which runs with it in the complete opposite direction um and does something this kind of like um Just sad and and very soft about it. Like there are scenes where the Clockwork Androids like break out their little like saws and start threatening to like cut people's body parts off and stuff. But like you never see any of the gore. You never see like the 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 crew that got cut up in the first place to repair the ship. You don't you don't get any indication of what's really happened there. Mm. It's very careful to not delve into the body horror element of what's happened on this ship and i do think that's very intentional because like that whole fairy tale romanticized vibe that the episode is going for and so instead you do get those really amazing cute little things like little human eyeball inside the like a camera socket that looks like it's from star wars and like Jabba's hut Um, or you know the human heart beating away down that corridor which is framed in an oddly beautiful way like it's it's a shitty thing that's happened to these people, and like the robots are quote unquote the bad guys for trying to obviously cut up people and replace parts of the ship with them. Um, but the way that it's all filmed and put together, down to putting those clockwork robots in period clothing with these ornate, beautiful masks that are creepy, but they are also quite gorgeous to look at. Mm. It just it's so careful to shield you from the horror of this story, and instead presents it in, in such a just a really uh, again like beautifully melancholic way mm. I mean everything is beautiful in this episode everything
1: is beautiful and you're right it is very it is very careful to shy away from showing specific gore and you're right that shot of the heart is is very very beautiful and not even the music behind it is so like adventure tone and not horror it's it's not horror driven at all um I also find it interesting like that the clockwork, Droids, um, which is a, a an amazing concept, and obviously I love how anachronistic Moffat gets with his technology and having clockwork droids be the service droids of uh, an, a futuristic spaceship. Because because for the mere reason that you know clockwork goes on and on and, on and 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 doesn't need batteries to sustain itself and can power up when the ship powers down it's so simple and so beautiful and also makes perfect sense, even while being so anachronistic. Um, It's also funny how the, the, the gory aspect of this episode, isn't that they're trying to replace their own body parts with like with human body parts, but the ship. And it's funny how, when we get a return for the droids in Peter Capaldi's first episode, deep breath, um, That is exactly what they're doing. And it's a much darker, grimmer tone of an episode to this. Um, Just a nice little observation.
0: (laughs) Would you believe that I completely forgot that they're the same kind of androids that we see in Peter Capaldi's first episode?
1: I, I I wouldn't blame you because they do look entirely different and there's only like a few lines of dialogue that imply they're the same.
0: Right, right. But yeah, no, That I mean, that's exactly very true. Like, you look at the contrast between those two things and it does provide a, a very stark um, look at the different ways that Moffat is, is capable of writing a, a quote-unquote sort of body horror uh, story. Um, I also think it's worth noting that the contrast between the way that he depicts um, technology just doing its thing, uh, being the ultimate villain, because he did it in um, – the empty child and the doctor dances in that those little like, um, healing, um, micro body fucking robot things were, you know, they were just doing what they were doing because they were trying to replicate the first thing that they encountered, which is what they thought a healthy human was awesome. And then here, you know, you've got these clockwork androids who aren't really capable of that self-realization and self-thought just doing what they think is the right thing to do to fix the ship which is to source parts from Madame de Pompadour because the ship is called the SS Madame de Pompadour and there's a painting of her on the wall it's it's such an elegant way of handling the villain of a story and it's something that um season 11 does a lot uh with varying degrees of success um but I do like the concept of um like ultimately the villain in this story is is time and the passage of time and, and death and whatnot it's not necessarily the creepy robots which are already amazing and creepy in their own right but i don't know it i understand why at the beginning of this episode you said it was so hard to talk about this one because it is just such a perfect interlocking little story box um that pulling any individual piece out feels like you you have to immediately talk about every other piece at the same time
1: (laughs) yes oh my god you're absolutely right and and something you just said then really resonates with me the idea that time is the enemy because I really subscribe to the idea that like that time isn't benevolent or passive like time is an active player in 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 the drama of Doctor Who and the idea that time can be your enemy and you are, you're you like fighting it is a very Moffat thing and comes up a lot in his era and I really really love that idea um and I think we get inklings of it here as well um what what do you make of Renette what do you make of Sophia Miles' performance as
0: Renette uh I I think she is stunning um it's Okay, so I think, like, her first scene as an adult where she kisses the Doctor is her weakest scene, um, just because, like, she doesn't have any of the development yet that goes on to sort of make her what she is towards the end of the episode. And so you just get, like, that problem we were talking about earlier with the whole, like, oh, oh, my gosh, the Doctor, whoa! Even though she doesn't call him the Doctor, she calls him, like, the TikTok man, fireplace man? That's right, yeah. TikTok man. Um, <laughs> and, um so yeah, I think once you get past that scene, I I think she just fully commands the performance. She has so much light and comedy, but gravitas at the same time. Um, her chemistry with David Tennant is obviously stunning because they were dating at the time. Uh, it, it, it all works for me. And the way that Moffat writes her is like, he obviously always has a way with words. Like he has this very particular kind of like sing song, rhymey, perfect little quotes that just worm their way into your head. um, and the way he writes her is she never breaks from that characterization of like, you know, she is Madame de Pompadour. She's from a certain time in history where people talk a certain way, but her sort of cunning and intelligence and the way she absorbs things from the doctor and and eventually Rose, um, allows her to meld these two performances where one is, you know, a historical figure and the other is, a woman who is capable of understanding so much more and wanting so much more for herself. And I think when you blend those two together, especially towards the end of the episode, uh, she just knocks it out of the park.
1: I think if I were going to criticize her performance, it would be on the basis of the criticism of a character that I had before, which is that she is functionary in so many different aspects and not necessarily a fully fledged character. But then you get that beautiful scene with, with Rose, uh, and the scene where she like steps onto the ship and i think that's when it really clicks for me when it really works um w- yeah which i know you have thoughts about as well
0: yeah i do um the the, the scene between her and rose we'll get to in a minute because that's a interesting one um but yeah when she she essentially like uh realizes that one of the doors to the ship is still slightly open and so she's like well fuck it like i i have a right to see this sort of uh space that i can only imagine that is you know somehow linked to moments in my life and so she goes through And she ends up in, like, you know, one of the corridors of the ship. And she's in, obviously, her full, like, you know, uh, her gown and everything. She's very much stepped out of time into an entirely different place. And up until this point, she's taken everything in stride. Sometimes as, as a criticism, I'd say, as well. Again, Moffat tends to write his women as hyper competent sometimes he, he has a very kind of like idealized way of of uh creating some of these characters um but uh, like when you get to the point where she finally gets onto the ship and uh when she's standing in the hallway She sort of takes it all in. And then further down the hallway, she hears uh, audio coming from another window, which is the moment that the androids finally catch up with her and, uh, and attack Versailles. And so everybody's screaming and she hears her own voice calling out for help. And it's like the entire perfect illusion she's created of like, I can handle all of this, completely shatters in an instant. And her performance in that moment, like as an actress, the way that she just cycles through those emotions so quickly is... Uh, it's just absolutely breathtaking. like it's it's one of the more magical moments of I think all of Dr. Who because what gets me the most excited about Doctor. Who is when it like really kind of like holds up a mirror to the whole time travel concept and says, hey, sometimes this is gonna be like a really disturbing, weird thing that people are gonna are uh, gonna experience and and this is just such a good example of that. Um, and yeah, the scene with her and Rose, H- how do you feel about it, especially after school reunion?
1: hmm i'm really i'm really glad to see the relationship that she eventually gets to with sarah um fold over into this episode into the way that she approaches madame de pompadour because like rose has always like been written on paper uh in like a character description as being like the most caring or a very caring person and always seeking human in the room to comfort or console which is entirely there in Billy Piper's performance. Like she is like inherently someone that you just want to have hold you and hug you. Um, and so I'm really glad that they have capitalized on that with this scene with Renée and haven't gone down the, the path of, she's someone vying for my, for the doctor's attention. So I must be her enemy. And I don't think that is Moffat's. I don't think that even enters Moffat's mind. If you like read and watch this episode, you can tell that immediately. Um, I really like that scene. I really like that scene on a number of levels. Um, Mostly because of the misunderstanding between the two of them and how Rose is there saying, you know, don't worry, he'll come, he'll come. um, And this isn't supposed to happen to you. I love that. Like this isn't supposed to happen to you. And she's like, well, what are you talking about? It, It happened. And I don't know what it is you're talking about, but like, this is my life you're talking about here. Um, I think it goes. It, it's a much nicer and softer way of doing the, the idea that the doctor takes companions and and twists them and takes them out of time and human perspective, um. Because it's still rose like empathizing with this character, but just like being unable to see them on their level because like they are just that step removed now from, from what it is to be human. I just really like it. I just really like it. And the, the line where, where Renette says. Um, <laughs> The line where Renette says, uh, so there is a vessel in your world where the pages of my life are pressed together like the chapters of a book so that he may step between them one after the other, but I weary traveler must take the slower path. Oh, I, obviously the fact that I've memorized
0: that means that I like it a lot, but I, oh, I love it so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's really good. And like having someone like uh, Renette be a character for like a delivery machine for Moffat's particular way of writing just works so well for her um you it's interesting that you bring up the whole concept of like rose's empathy being a defining factor for her on paper and obviously that doesn't entirely translate into the character sometimes um but it did remind me of the last time that moffat wrote rose where she had another moment with a woman out of time where she got to express empathy and tell her that like hey you know you win the war like this isn't going to be life forever and it's again it's another good example of the time travel stuff it's another great opportunity for rose to Employ that human perspective and not the kind of detached perspective that she gets criticized for in uh Tooth and Claw. So, like, stuff like that is just it it's really, really well done. Um and yeah, that the, the conversation between the two of them is, is just such a, a, a nice moment. And like you said, especially as a implementation of the lessons that she learned from Sarah Jane at the end of the last episode. Um even though again, obviously we've criticized this episode a little bit for the fact that where it lands in the timeline is a little bit confusing in some regards, but then in other ways, it just perfectly locks in. Mm. Uh, it's, it's really bizarre. Hmm. Mm, You're right. And you've just reminded
1: me of another point, which is that obviously at the end of school reunion, there's Rose saying, you know, what do, what do I do? Do I, do I go with him? and sarah says you know yes because the doctor's worth it you know he's worth the heartache and renette says something similar here where she says you know the doctor's worth the monsters which i i don't buy necessarily because like renette's have like what a half an hour of time to him basically at this point yeah but like years of emotional crystallization though (laughs) Uh, totally totally that's obviously like i'm being quantitative not qualitative but it is, you're right, it is a nice mirror. It is a nice mirror.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And and speaking of another weird follow-up to last week's episode of School Reunion, I know that um. now, obviously, we recorded on a Tuesday night. We were both a little bit out of it. Things got a bit hairy towards the end with our theories and our wild concepts. But uh, we did pretty definitively state that we didn't think David Tennant was doing a very good job as the Doctor um, at the moment. And it's bizarre because this week he really does kind of like pull out a fantastic performance. It's still not entirely where it needs to be for me. Um, but I think what makes this work for him is that, um, Tennant is to me a much better actor when he has a more subdued script to work with. I think it's why he does so well in Jessica Jones. Um, and so to have Moffat writing The Doctor this week, uh, who doesn't tend to go for the big screamy moments, at least at this point in his career, um, I, I think it does allow David Tennant to bring a little bit more organic charisma to the to the role as opposed to the kind of like very forced, big dramatic charisma that he has to do with some of RTD's scripts. Um, how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. I pretty much, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think
1: it's also like probably... The first episode we've had that's genuinely written for him um i know there were plans that this like these first four five episodes were envisaged with eccleston in mind and it's really really hard to see how this episode could have been developed with chris reckleston um like i'm not even gonna go there um but um yeah i i I think this is like one of the first episodes that is written with Tenet in mind Tenet obviously is a very romantic figure a very dashing figure and it suits his uh natural abilities a bit more than I guess episodes we've seen so far um I really do I yeah I I I don't really have like a lot to say about his performance other than um it's it's just it's good and it serves the story I still do think that uh, the thoughts that we expressed last week still hold true um the other the other big theory we put forward last week obviously was also that the doctor is not in love with rose um and i think you can also see that interpretation here in in his readiness to sort of abandon uh rose and mickey and i know you said that it's not abandonment but i think it is and we can that's not neither here nor there um his readiness to leave them both and to leave Rose specifically, I think, goes some way to supporting that theory. Um. Maybe not entirely, but some way. Um. Yeah, I think the real MVP. Well, not MVP, but I really do think that one of the the better elements of this episode, even though they don't really get a lot to do, is Mickey. Mm-hmm.
0: Totally, Mickey is um. It one, it's nice to have him as part of the the trio now. Even though this is technically the only episode he really gets as as, as an official part of the trio. Um, but yeah, he he delivers such a an effortless performance this time. Um, you know, him and Rose being paired up again, they have an incredible amount of chemistry. Like I know that we talk about David Tennant and Billy Piper together, but like um, but Noel Clark and and Billy Piper have this like perfect childhood to lovers to friends like vibe between the two of them it, it just really works um and so you get little cute moments of him like he him and Rose get these like big like uh, mr freeze guns and he's rolling around like he's in like a fucking like video game or something and yeah, i think you put in the show notes like you're not Meant to be laughing at him, you're meant to be laughing with him mm. for once, and it's such a nice shift because it's not slapstick comedy. It's not him running into a wall and being like, "I'm the tin dog." It's like, no, no, you're not the tin dog. Like, you're Mickey. You're fucking Mickey, mm. and that's great. And it's good to see him get to be Mickey.
1: You're, you're so, you're so right. Um, it's so good to see him be Mickey. It's also so good to see him like not like like you just said, not be the butt of the jokes, um, because like. I think one of the worst uh, the most elements of last season was like the fact that the jokes around Mickey basically amounted to the doctor saying you're an idiot and like that's just dumb that's just crass it's it's not clever at all and the one there is just like one dig that he gets from the doctor in this episode and it is witty and it is deserving in that moment which is when Mickey's like, what's a horse doing on a spaceship? (laughs) And then the doctor says, Mickey, what's pre-revolutionary France doing on a spaceship? Get some perspective. And it just, it's a perfect way of, like, honouring that past antagonism without it being antagonistic in any way. Like, I I think we could almost, like, do a whole essay about Mickey and the way that he gets treated. And obviously this is his last episode as a proper uh, companion, because next week is spoiler alert, um, he's leaving. It's, so it is just, it is just nice. You're Like you said, it is just nice to see them all just like getting along being a team uh, in such a way that I almost wish this had been the dynamic for this entire season. Like I really do like in the same way that Rory joined the TARDIS and became, it became a threesome. Oh God, don't say that. Uh, and they became a, 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 um, a three-way team, um, in season six, I, it would have been nice to see a bit more of Mickey. Um, and to see him go on this journey that I know he's going on, where he becomes the hero and he steps out of the shadow of Rose and the Doctor, it just would have been nice to see more of him.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're pretty big Mickey uh, proponents on this show, and and yeah, it does make those earlier um, jokes with him just yeah, just that that little bit more sour on the palate. It does. You're right. It does definitely sour the palate. Um, and there's like two
1: elements in this episode that do hark back to that old older interpretation well it still is the interpretation but um it's less apparent in this episode one is the way that um the doctor like dismisses King Louis straight off the bat and he's like ooh well earned a lot of times. So you can just go fuck off um hate it hate it hate any display of toxic masculinity hate it um and the other thing is the fact that when he comes back to Rose and Mickey he gives Rose a big hug And then he goes straight up to Mickey, and he's like, nah. And he gives him a handshake. I'm just like, give him a hug. He deserves a hug. He's been through a shit time too. He was tied up. Why didn't you give him a hug? Oh, that's my end of my rant.
0: (laughs) Nah, I get it. I get it. It's it's 2006. No homo, man. No homo. Um... Yeah, it's interesting you bring up this whole toxic masculinity thing because that actually ties into, like, I think my last point really about the girl in the fireplace. Um, I like that Renette directly challenges the doctor on his kind of like shitty masculine shell of let me just deal with my pain like a big boy in quiet kind of thing um because they have their like uh force bond mind meld moment where he ostensibly tries to like read her mind and she ends up being able to read his in return you know a door once opened can be walked through both ways god damn it you're a good writer moffat anyway i'm sorry um <laughs> uh and you know, he kind of like blocks her out a little bit and he, uh, cause she sees how lonely he is and how sad his childhood was and everything. And also, there's some stuff with the whole, like, you know, the true name of the doctor and fucking fucking blah, 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 whatever. Um, and, instead of allowing him to kind of like retreat and do the whole broody man thing that he does at every other point in the series she has a really great line that harkens back to what he did what moffat did in um, the doctor dances where she says like no like you're gonna dance with me there comes a time when every lonely little boy needs to learn how to dance and as you know as an extended metaphor for both sort of like uh burgeoning sexuality and maturity and coming into your own and understanding yourself a bit better i think it's good that she offers such like an immediate and direct rebuttal to the brooding uh, cowboy stuff that they try to do with Tenet a bit too much I think Um, and I really like that and that's followed up really nicely at the end of the episode in what I think is a good example of like positive masculinity when um so obviously uh, he goes back for Rinette and she's she's already dead. Like he misses her by like a few hours, essentially, as a chance to say goodbye to her. And he gets given a letter that she writes him. And he's mostly pretty silent for the bulk of this ending. It's, it's a really great performance, just entirely in his face. And he reads the letter on the TARDIS and it's this big sad moment about how like, you know, she's waiting for him and, and blah, blah, blah. He puts the letter away and Rose and Mickey come in to the TARDIS um, and Rose is like, Hey, you're right. He's like, yeah, I'm always all right. And Rose is kind of like about to press him uh, about what happened and where Renette is or whatever that she's going to ask about. And Mickey looks at him and just kind of gently steers Rose away. He's like, come on, it's time you show me the rest of the ship because there's an intrinsic understanding between the two of them that sometimes like, sometimes it's shitty when dudes don't talk about their pain and sometimes people do just need to be left alone to feel what they've got to feel in that moment. And I do like that there's that, like, uh, implicit camaraderie between the two of them as men um, that uh, allows the Doctor the space to do that and allows Mickey, the emotional intelligence, to realise that. It's just such a long way from the kind of, like, the tin dog goofiness of Mickey that we've had before.
1: Mm. You're right. Um, Mickey definitely gets a great deal i think they all get a great deal here it's just like it's just a really kind look at these characters and not a abrasive and i know that like the essence of drama is conflict and obviously all that malarkey but like it doesn't have to be conflict where your characters are in like the worst light or show off ugly aspects it can just be it can just be conflict on a small scale on a on a on a emotional scale and i think that's what this episode does really well is just emotions and it's so funny to hear me saying that me being like the champion of rtd and like truth and all that guff <laughs> um it's just it yeah
0: it just works so well yeah <laughs> I'm- it does girl in the fireplace it just works <laughs>
1: <laughs> bang done see you later um <laughs> done we should also just briefly before we wrap up we should uh just mention the the really nice direction uh on behalf of Euros Lin um who is a pretty like pretty reliable director on Doctor Who
0: yeah I, I think his his previous efforts before this one being um like End of the World was, was quite well directed uh Unquiet Dead and Tooth and Claw are competent with flashes of excellence, I would say. Um, but they've also got their individual problems. And I think we go on the fireplace. And from this point on, um, with the exception of Fear Her, which <laughs> we will get to fear her, everybody. Um, with the exception of that one, I-, I think he kind of like really finds his footing here. And again, the way that this episode employs like um contrast between like the warmth of um puss one per- ma ma ooh. <clears throat> the warmth of Renette's life and like the cold, harsh aesthetics of the spaceship and what he gets to do with the lighting and, and the, the general tone of all of these shots is it's just really great work. Um, and this is one of the first times in a while that I really noticed the score being quite good.
1: Oh yeah. Murray Gold's score. Um, yeah, this is one of his best pieces of music I think he's done for the show. Um, just so haunting so lilting and 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 sensitive um not to put too fine a point on it um it's just really really good um and there's lots of like key jaunty moments like the music that accompanies rose and mickey as they're like doing their aliens thing down the corridor um the the court music the soft romantic it's just it's just a really good just a really good score and the design as well of the ship i really like i really love russell t's yeah um uh this era of the show where the ships are like messy and dirty and and very 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 stacked with detail um it's all it all works really well
0: <laughs> it does it really does. Uh, and speaking of good scores, let's let's wrap this one up with our uh, patented grading system. <laughs> um, I I am going to give the girl in the fireplace an A. Uh, I think it's just shy of an A plus. I am going to reserve those for like you know, obviously the real special moments. Um, but yeah, I think this is easily one of the best episodes of, of Tenants Run, and um, just another like sort of tick in Moffat's box, which is very nice.
1: Mm. Hmm. Mm. I'm also going to give it an A. Um, for the reason that I can't give it an A plus, because I feel like that is just a shade. It's just a shade away from that for me. Um, and, and, and something I've just thought of then is like I, the, another reason why I probably can't give it that like top top mark is because uh, is because like it doesn't fit with the season as a whole and I think that is a problem I don't think that's a problem with the episode necessarily I think that's a problem with the showrunner um and the the season necessarily but anyway I'm I'm definitely rambling here uh A for sure excellent good good
0: stuff All right. Uh, As always, thank you so much for joining us. We uh, really appreciate your company. Uh, We hope you're all doing well. Um, If you would like to reach out and have any of your thoughts, feelings or questions read on the show, you can email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's the word two. Or you can find us on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, MySpace, whatever you want um, at twoheartspod. And that's the number two
1: uh yeah absolutely and you can find me cj on twitter instagram at cjmclean underscore
0: and i'm on twitter at omg more james uh we will see you folks in two weeks time to talk about the cyberman two-parter in what is sure to be a contentious fun episode mm,
1: back to the old back to the old conflict that we're so used to <laughs>
0: See you next time, Russell.